we're going to learn about and review the transfiguration of Jesus on the mount. So before we do that, who was on the mount with Jesus transfigured? Who were the people he met? Anybody? Say that again. Peter, James, and John, right, they're up on the mountain, and they see the transfiguration. Who do they see? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, right. Any thoughts before we get into this about the significance of Moses and Elijah? Anybody? Right, so one thought is they represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. They must have been told by Jesus after the fact. They may have had some special insight to see that, but obviously they'd never seen Moses or Elijah. So I assume, when we'll get into this, after, after the fact, when they were walking down the mountain and they were talking with Jesus, he must have, I think, explained to them who that was. Any other thoughts about the significance of Moses and Elijah as the only two? Why not David or why not Isaiah? Or Anybody have ideas of that? Maybe. I don't think he was because I didn't mention that. But <laughs> if he was, it, it, we don't know about it. So. They were regarded as two greatest prophets. Right. Yes. Yeah, so Moses was the greatest prophet. And Moses and Elijah were regarded probably as the Jews as the two greatest prophets. I think ultimately we don't know exactly why it was those two because the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us that, but we can come to some conclusions. And I have my own conclusion, and I think that will come out toward the end of the study today. But um, let's read it. Let's read. And what I'd like to do for us is I'm going to back up, and the the text for today is going to be uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. But I'll back up so that we can get um, oriented uh, in Mark's uh, storyline here. You'll remember that if you look at chapter 8, verse 31, this is starting this section where Jesus asks, who do they say that I am? Verse 29, excuse me. And Peter answers and says, you're the Christ. And then he says, don't tell anybody that yet. And then Jesus explains to them how he's going to suffer. And immediately Peter says, no, that's not. He rebukes Jesus and says, that can't be. And then Peter himself is rebuked. And then after Peter's rebuked, Jesus has some teaching to the disciples and actually everybody around them about the cost of discipleship. And it's after that that uh, Jesus is then transformed before them. So I want to go ahead and read that section, and then we'll go back through it a little more slowly. I'm going to start at verse um, 31 of chapter 8. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, so the crowd and the disciples, so everyone is hearing this portion of it, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit 
his soul. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Okay, so Jesus taught he was going to suffer and die earlier before this event. Uh, Yet, it was inconceivable to... Peter and the rest, that that could happen. No matter how many times he seems to tell them that this is going to happen, this isn't the first time, they just cannot get their head around the idea that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be murdered. Cannot see it. And Peter speaks to that when he says, of course, Lord, that's not going to happen. So their view of the Messiah was radically different than what was really going to happen. Okay? So much so they just can't, no matter how many times he tells them, they cannot understand it. And then if you look fast forward here, from here, between this point in time and Pentecost, you see that even Peter still doesn't get it, and the apostles still don't get it. Remember, he tries to cut off the guy's head. He denies Jesus several times. He just can't figure it out, no matter how clear Jesus, clearly Jesus uh, speaks to them. So, also, before this transfiguration, we have to remember that Jesus has some really hard teachings for them. If you look back from verses 34 to 38, just to summarize it, I mean, he basically tells them, deny yourself, right? Take up your cross, and that means, we talked about it two weeks ago, they knew what that meant. That was a convicted person marching to death, carrying their own cross. So they knew they were going to die. So when he says, take up your cross, this is a very serious statement to the people listening, that if you're going to deny yourself, it really means you're like, your death is near, and you're, you're dead to yourself, and you know the end is near. So take up your cross, it's hard work, and follow me. Um, and then he says, follow me, and then he says, I'm going to die. So obviously the implication is very clear. You follow me, I'm going to die, and you're going to die. 
um, lose your life for my sake. That's pretty clear. Lose your life means losing everything that we hold dear to ourselves, all our plans for the future, all the things we have in our household, in our family, everything. We lose all that for Christ's sake. So this is very tough teaching and sobering for the people hearing it. Uh, the goal is to save your soul. You can gain the whole world, all the riches it has, do everything the world has has to offer and gain everything the world has and you can still lose your soul. So the goal, Jesus is telling them, is you want to save your soul and you do that by losing your life. It does no good to gain the whole world if you're going to lose your soul. And then he finishes it just reminding them that they're actually, look at verse 38, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. So pointing out, really? Think about it. You are living in an adulterous and sinful time, just like we are, is that really worth following after? Like, if, is it worth being ashamed of me so that you can be a part of this adulterous and sinful generation? Of course not. So he, he's reminding them it is a sinful and adulterous time. It's an evil world they're living in. Um, don't be ashamed of me for that. Because if you are, what does he say? Uh, I'll be ashamed of you when the Father comes with his holy angels in glory. So, really hard teaching for the disciples. And so, no doubt, at this moment, they were sort of hanging their heads low, right? They had a vision of the Messiah. It's not going to be the way I explain. Peter's rebuked. He's basically told he's like Satan. Then this very difficult teaching for them, and they're probably very serious, right? And again, fast forward, what are they going to see in the near future, about six months from now, He'll be rejected. They will spit on him. They'll put the crown of thorns. He'll go to the cross, and he'll be crucified. So the headwinds against the disciples and the apostles are pretty strong, right? And so in the middle of that, you have this vision of the transfiguration. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, he says, There are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Any thoughts on what that means? Who is he speaking to, and what do you think he's referring to when he says the kingdom of God coming with power? There's not really an exact right answer here. So. The Holy Spirit? I think so. That's what I think mostly he's speaking of, is the inauguration of the kingdom of God is going to come with power at Pentecost. Really, it comes at the cross and the resurrection, right? So that, that's one way to interpret it. Say That's what he's referring to, is that those who are standing here, those people, some of them standing there, they won't die until they see this kingdom of God inaugurated or started at Pentecost. Any other ideas? Um, right, the second coming. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Right, so that is, some people think that. I don't think it can be that because it says those standing there won't die until they see the kingdom of God. People who interpret it that way say what he's talking about when he says you won't die, he's talking about this, this ultimate death. So you won't have ultimate death at the second coming when he comes back at the final judgment. You won't see that until uh, the kingdom of God comes with power. So that is one thought that people have um, that that's referring to. So either the inauguration at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit some people think it's a second coming. Go ahead, Phil. So that, that very idea, when, either, when he says taste death, you know, it's not, it's not a, a 
full consumption of death is, is taped. It's just the first death really is pretty clear. It's clear that it's, he's not talking about the second death. I think it's clear. And I think taste death, what I read in the commentary, that's basically was a, a phrase that meant to die. That's what was a Jewish phrase at that time when they said, you won't taste death, it meant you won't die until you see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Yes. Any other thoughts? There's one more. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. And so that, that I lean toward that too. It could be both because the next verse it says six days later. So he could be referring to this six days later. He's basically saying some of you will not die until you see the coming of the kingdom of God. And that what he was referring to was what happened a week later, six days later, when they saw this coming with his transfiguration, speaking with Moses and Elijah. Um, is this just the, the typical hermeneutical challenges we face where when we're left to speculate? Right. You know, I think all these have been arguments that have been brought up, but there's not a lot of definitive right. evidence to say. And so to me, you got to go to the nearest common denominator, and that's contextually. Mm -hmm. I think the only place you can go is the transfiguration. Yeah. I think there are some key words in there, like in Matthew uh, 16, where it talks about the, how the kingdom of God is translated in reference to Christ as mm -hmm. a uh, display of his royal splendor, yep. uh, which is what they see in the transfiguration. And then even the conjunctive uh, clause there of and six days later or eight days later, right. is the chapter and verse in Matthew 16 doesn't make sense. Because uh, it does flow straight into that scene that Matthew writes about in Luke and Mark uh, in that. So, so to me, the safest place is the transfiguration uh, as that thing. Otherwise, it is, it's hard to really know who is right. And that's where we get into danger with our hermeneutics. Is when it just becomes what you think is the better option or right. uh, gives you more uh, assurance. Right. Uh, so we want to stick with the, the basic. I think it's indeed safe to just look at the verse 1 and verse 2. The kingdom of God coming with power. Six days later, boom, you see God coming with power with the radiant face and the transfiguration. It might be helpful for us to know who was standing there. What do you mean? Well, there are some standing here. Oh, right. So. Right, right. Who exactly was, were there, were there old men there? Were, were, <laughs> was it just a few? You know, well, uh, and if you go backwards, right, it, it's, it was disciples plus other people who heard that hard teaching. So there was a lot of people standing there, right. Okay, so the point is, the kingdom of God will come with power. They won't die beforehand. And the next scene is the six days later when you see the transfiguration. So... I think Jesus clearly, you can see here when it says six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. Uh, Jesus wanted witnesses to this event. That's why he took those three guys up there. This is a high mountain. I forget the name of the mountain, but it was a long, high, tall mountain, 9,000 feet or something like that. So they had to hike up there. So he took these three personally up on the mountain so that they could witness this transfiguration. 
uh, says that they were there by themselves. He's transfigured before them. Luke says that during this time that um, Luke 9, while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. So Luke tells us that in the midst of Jesus' prayer was when this event occurred. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That's a strange phrase, I think, about laundry and the whiteness of it. Um, and Mark's the only guy that sort of uses that phrase. Um, but the point is, extremely white. And the other... Uh, gospel accounts, Matthew says his, also his face shone like the sun. So think of that. That's the imagery. It was so bright. Jesus' face was so exceedingly bright that it was like the sun. That's pretty bright, right? And uh, Matthew says his garments became as white as light. Light. White light is all the colors, right? It, it's, it's just everything. It's wh- white, as white as white can be. As white as light. And Luke says his clothing became white and gleaming. And the word Luke uses is the gleaming, and it refers to like a, um, actually like lightning, like a glimmering, shiny lightning, or like a metal, piece of metal would be real shiny and against a bright light. So, it, so we get the idea here. It is a completely, uh, almost out of this worldly transformation. White like the sun and gleaming. Um, so, it's an instance where Jesus' personhood, you know, on earth, Jesus cloaked his divinity, right, in his human flesh. And this is an instance, I think, where that is broken, and you see God shining forth. And it reminds me, actually, of Philippians chapter 2. I want to go there real quick, and this speaks to this uh, concept. I think it's called kenosis, right? The kenosis of... Um, Jesus basically is um, referring to how Jesus emptied himself of his godliness when he came to earth and he humbled himself. Let me find that. It's uh, Philippians chapter 2. I'll start at verse 5, actually, of Philippians 2. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So it just explains Jesus' humility on earth extreme humility that he was God and he would come down to earth and have this attitude and were to have the same attitude. It says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And that's the word that comes, uh, from which comes kenosis. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name. So this is an example where we see Jesus' humanity or divinity breaking forth through this sort of cloak of his flesh. Um, And this is clearly not just a vision in their minds, just so it's clear. This is something they really saw. This really happened. They marched up the mountain Jesus was there with Elijah and Moses, and they were talking together, and there was a great light, and it was shining. It's not something just in their heads. So, more conjecture. We can go here a little bit, but uh, and I think it might be helpful. It says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. They were talking with Jesus. So, what state were Moses and Elijah in? Uh, they were human forms, right? So... It's hard to know. So I think God just temporarily gave them their, their soul a, a bodily form to bring to earth so that Peter and James and John could see Jesus talking with them. Or he gave them their heavenly bodies early. 
I'm not sure how that happens. Randy, any well, thoughts? I don't know much about this, but you know, Moses, nor, Moses nor Elijah were, died. Elijah was taken up, and Moses was just walked off. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yes, thank you. <laughs> right. So that, that's some of the thoughts behind it. When they translated into the eternal realm, right. in their physical bodies, I don't know. Thank you. We'll actually get to some of those verses in a minute. So that was, that's another reason to conjecture as to why those two in particular, because the Jewish people, and Peter and James and John also, may have had it in their brains that there was something special about these two. Elijah was, was taken up by the chariots. Just, he never died. And Moses died, actually, and was buried, but it says nobody knew where he was buried. So there was some mystery around those two men. And so an idea is... All right, yes. And uh, was it Michael contended with him? I think it was the archangel. So the Lord rebuked him? Yeah. So another reason maybe that the Lord chose those two to be um, there with Jesus. You know, another thing about these two, Moses had an experience on the mountain on Mount Sinai. Yes. And he wished to see the glory of the Lord. The Lord told him, no, you going to have to be hidden in a cleft of the rock. Right. And I'll pass by. You know, you can see my angel part. Yes. Right. And when he came down, his face was shining. Yeah. And then Elijah had a mountaintop experience on Mount Carmel where he uh, contended with the 400 prophets. I got to pause there, Phil. Always getting ahead of me. <laughs> Always getting ahead of me, Phil. I knew this would happen. Yes, I mean, absolutely right. And then, and then it's, it's Exodus 33 we'll get to in a minute with Moses. And uh, Elijah, Mount Carmel, for sure, this experience with, with the prophets and demonstrating God's power. But also, Elijah was on Mount Sinai. We'll get to that in a minute, too, Mount Horeb. Another reason, well, let's go there. So, um, where was I? So, he, he's transfigured before them. His garden garments are clearly like light. Um, divinity is pouring forth through Jesus' you know. Earthly body, um, and they were talking with Jesus. That's what I want to go. What were they have been talking about? I, I, it's a wonderful scene to me. Okay, so you have Jesus going to the cross soon. He knows it's coming. He's telling his disciples, "I'm going to die. This is a whole mission. The reason I'm here is this mission. I am going to die. You have to die yourself. Follow me." And so he's marching from here on out to Jerusalem, right to his death. And so he meets up with Moses. I just imagine they were, what? Encouraging him. He, had, he was human. He was God. Yes, we see he was God, but he was human, and he, and he was going to suffer, and he was a suffering servant. So I imagine uh, they were encouraging him. Moses, it's hard. Jesus knew Moses in, in a heavenly way and in an omniscient way because he's God, but you know, Moses could have said, you know, I was a spokesman for God to my people, too, and they repeatedly rejected me. So, and now you're the ultimate sacrifice for everything that pointed to you. And so, I don't know, it just must have been a very neat discussion, right? We do know that they were talking about the death because in Luke, actually, chapter 9, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were talking about his departure and what was about to come. 
And Elijah could have said the same thing. You know, I, I, I killed the prophets of Baal. I demonstrated the power. The people continually turned from me. Um, hang in there. Kind of, you know, like, uh, this, is, this, is, this is the historic event that we have been hoping for and waiting for and um, telling about, and people continued to reject us. Um, so I imagine it was an encouraging discussion. Don't know how long they talked together, but it does say that they were talking. Um, another observation I had was, uh, you know, this would have been the only time that we know of where Moses was actually in the Holy Land, right? So he never made it there when he was alive. The Lord said, you will, you'll almost make it there, but you're not going to enter the land of Canaan. But here he did. He's there in, in this region um, speaking with Jesus. Another good way to, to look at it, right. Yep. It definitely demonstrates his humanity. Yeah. Yeah, very encouraging vision, I think, to see those guys talking to each other. And it was no doubt encouraging to Peter and James and John to see that as well. Um, and we'll, we'll talk in a minute a lot more about Moses and Elijah. But first, Peter. So that this is, I don't know if it's funny, but... You know, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Um, so he just blurts this out, and I think this just reveals Peter's personality. Some people, when they're terrified and scared, would be quiet. I would be. I would just, right? But Peter is terrified, and he just, you know open mouth and just blurts out something, which actually the next verse says, but he didn't know what to answer, for they became terrified. So basically the idea here is Peter uh, has this idea to build these tents for these heavenly creatures. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and after the fact, I think he realized, oh, that, that doesn't make sense. And Jesus doesn't really answer that. We don't have any in either of the other accounts. There's no answer to that. It's kind of like, you know, I, I, just, I think it's just a demonstration of Peter and his personality wanting to be hospitable, wanting to do something probably useful, but um, if you really think about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I think he's ecstatic. He, he was terrified, confused, and just sort of wanted to do something. And he, never at a loss for words, he, he just blurted that out. Um, the other interesting thought is it may, this may have been actually the time of the Feast of Tabernacles where the Jewish people for a week would go out and they would all form their, their tents, their tabernacles, and live in it 
for a week, so that may be some of the background here as to why he said that. But point is, they were terrified. And they're even more terrified probably after the next verse. It says, a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So that is almost a direct quote from what was said earlier in Mark when Jesus is uh, baptized. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But the point is, God is speaking, as he often did in the Old Testament, out of a cloud. And no doubt that terrified him because every other time you read about God's presence among men, people are terrified. They don't. They want to look at it. They want to bow down. Um, so they must have been, you know, very frightened. And I will say, so this uh, transfiguration is really second only to the resurrection. If you want to consider something that is uh, obviously a, a um, transcendent or visitation of God in the New Testament, this has to be second only to the resurrection. It's very dramatic, very obvious miracle that these three men were able to see. So at this point, I do, I do want to go through some of the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament, there's a lot of them, verses which describe what God is like when he visits people. And it's almost always in a cloud or light. And I just want to read some of these uh, Verses 4. You don't have to flip there. A lot of them are in Exodus, and one's going to be Exodus 33, which Phil already mentioned. So um, after the Israelites flee Egypt, the Red Sea is departed. Shortly after that, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 10, it says, It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Uh, Exodus 19, just before he's given the Ten Commandments, when Moses is with the Lord, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'll come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Exodus chapter 24, um, it says, Moses, okay, Moses is going to go back up on Mount Sinai. It says, he arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up the mountain of God. But the elders, to the elders, he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. And then verse 15, it says, then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on the mountain and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called Moses from the midst of the cloud and the eyes of the sons of Israel, the and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses was there for 40 days and for 40 nights. So the point being, often it's a cloud that the Lord speaks from. And then Exodus 33, I'll read these few verses because they're significant. Verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. So he's telling Moses, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. But then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will 
put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. After that, Moses is in the mountain with the Lord for this length of time. In Exodus 34, verse 29, it says, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. Okay, so the point being, this image that Peter, James, and John saw would have been obvious to them like what Moses encountered with the radiant face, with the white glowing uh, body, really. And when Jesus told them, at what point in time, I don't know, but when Jesus told them, yeah, that was Moses and Elijah, they would have started making these connections, right? Because they knew the Old Testament that God visited with Moses. God visited with Elijah on the mountain. We'll get to Elijah's mountain experience in a minute. But, and so they're up on the mountain. So the whole imagery is intended, I believe, to create in their minds uh, a remembrance of this time with Moses and Elijah. And we'll get to Elijah in a minute, actually. We'll talk some more about him. Because he's a real interesting character. He's mentioned quite a few times in the New Testament, but if you read the Old Testament, there's only a few chapters committed to Elijah. So we'll get to that in just a minute. But um, let me read on here in chapter 9, verse 8 of Mark. So they looked around. They see no one except Jesus. They're coming down the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they'd seen. Again, for the same reason we've talked about before, probably, he doesn't want a premature declaration of this before everything happens, which is he dies and he raises again. It wouldn't have been fruitful. Jesus has the wisdom. God has the wisdom to know that. So he's like, don't tell anybody about this until after everything has been completed, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And then it says, they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. So basically he's saying they did keep it to themselves, but then they started talking about resurrection. What does rising from the dead mean? And they knew what rising from the dead meant. They had seen, actually, people raised from the dead at Jesus' orders. He'd raised people from the dead. But the point is they were just discussing, talking about resurrections and what that meant and what does it mean. Again, he said the Son of Man will raise from the dead. They, in their mind, couldn't conceive that this would happen. So they're talking amongst each other. What does this mean? And then verse 11, they ask him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So, clearly, the scribes, first of all, were saying Elijah must come first. Okay, we visited this before. Why do they think that? Any thoughts? It's prophesied. Where is it? Right. Where is it prophesied? Malachi. Like the last verses of the Old Testament, right? So that was in their brain. Malachi, we'll get to that in a minute. It's Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. So it was prophesied that Elijah would come in the end before Messiah. Right, exactly. So, but about Elijah, I want to review a little bit about his history. If you, um, just for a few minutes, he first comes on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. Right, and this is, um, and then after that, there's several chapters, 17 through 19, and then 2 Kings, the first in chapter 2, is when he's taken up into heaven. So really you have about five chapters in the Old Testament that describe Elijah's life. But after that, 
He's mentioned a few other times in the Old, Te Old Testament just referencing his life. In the New Testament, he's mentioned here in this transfiguration. He's mentioned earlier on in Luke and Matthew when Jesus basically says, you know, John is Elijah, if you can accept it. And so John the Baptist, or Elijah was a forerunner for John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came as a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah. Remember when people... Even Herod was thinking, oh, who is Jesus? Is he John the Baptist or is he Elijah? So Elijah was predominant in people's mind that he would come before the Messiah. So all the, a lot of Jews knew it and thought that. They even mocked Jesus on the cross, remember? And they said, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Oh, let's see if Elijah will come down and save him. So just pointing out that Elijah coming before the Messiah was a well-known uh, thought in the minds of the Jewish people and the scribes. But back to 1 Kings. So you remember 1 Kings, Elijah first is presented when he predicts the drought. He says, goes to Ahab, says there's going to be a drought. Ahab is the king of the north, evil king. They're all evil in the north. And then after that, the Lord sends him to this brook, Cherith, and says, go over there. I will take care of you. You'll have water, and he'll feed him. After a period of time, he sends him from there up to the widow at Zarephath, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, and he provides for her and for her son the food. And after that, her son dies, and Elijah raises her son from the dead. Um, so clearly, the power of God is on Elijah. He's being spoken to by God. He's being cared for through this drought. He's raising this young man from the dead. Um, and then the Lord says... Um, um, he sends him to Ahab to talk to him about these prophets of Baal, who Jezebel had already killed a lot of the prophets. And he's sent to confront Ahab because he's worshiping these prophets of Baal. And he confronts him, and he confronts the 450 prophets. Remember this? And he says, yeah, show me your God, what he can do. And he can't do anything. And then he builds this big fire, and he puts water on it, or the wood and water, and he just burns all the wood that's saturated with water showing God's power at Mount Carmel. So he defeats these prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. After that, he kills them, slays them with a sword. And then Jezebel, is so interesting, threatens to kill him, right? He, and what does he do? He runs away to Beersheba, which is, I looked on the map, it's like 150 miles away, and it says he ran. So I guess I like, he's a runner. Seriously, he, two places in the Old Testament says he ran. So that was one of them. He, he flees from Jezebel to Beersheba. He's in the wilderness. He's under this juniper tree, and that's where the angels minister to him. And I just want to read this verse in 1 Kings 19 um, to bring us around to Mount Sinai. So after he flees to Beersheba, this is what the Lord says to him. It's 1 Kings 19, verse 7. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So if you read it quickly, you don't realize he went all the way from Beersheba for 40 days, and I think it's about 200 miles to the area that we think is you know, Mount Sinai, which is Mount Horeb, they're synonymous. So he goes all the way from there to Mount Sinai. And then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, 
and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by. This is a really neat verse. Let me read this. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. It's just a really wonderful text. A gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and I seek my life to take it away. So, all this to say, this is a scene on Mount Sinai where the Lord meets and speaks with Elijah. The Lord met and spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. The Jews at that time knew this. And so the, uh, the image for the apostles, Peter and James and John, seeing Jesus, who is really God, right? In a way, it's God talking to Moses and Elijah on the mountain, just would have been the image that they would not forget, absolutely would not forget it. And they needed that image. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. When you consider what they're going to do in a few months, Right? They are going to, against all these headwinds, which we've already talked about, Jesus is dead. The Holy Spirit's going to come. So they're going to, they are turning earth, right? This historic event which has happened, which is completely, in some ways, opposite of what anyone would expect, even the Jewish people, they're going to be the, the rock, right? They're the foundation. They are the apostles. They are going to take this message throughout the whole rest of the world. So uh, this image would have been a great reminder to them of the work that they had um, which laid before them. Um, but I do think it's critical for them to I think at a point they they, they view him as a different type of king right. than what he is right. right. Then he starts telling them of his death yeah. at this point and that they were going to suffer. Yep. And and in them seeing through this as well. And and it's almost like is this the guy we really want to follow? Yeah. I think they needed this vision of him, mm -hmm. this royal symbol, mm -hmm. to, to confirm in their mind, regardless of what happens in the next few months. Yep. This is the king, the king. That's right. Yeah. I think. And then to make things worse, they get this taste where he had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm, right. They think, okay, everything's great now. Yeah. This is it. Right. Only to be you know, thrown down in the depths later. Yeah, and you wonder if at that point you could echo in Peter's mind. You know, the triumphal entry, right, when they're starting to see, oh, a glimmer of hope. Um, maybe it's not going to happen yet. And actually, I think that's when, when Peter says, yeah, thank you. Where is it here? When Peter says, um, it may not be here, it's in one of the other accounts, basically intimating that he did not want them to leave. Well, that's the thought. When he's building the tabernacles, he may have wanted this moment to last. He's like, okay, he just told us about his death. He's told us about suffering and dying and what the cost. And now, this heavenly vision, he may have had another glimmer of hope. Like, well, maybe this can be delayed for a, a while. And that's why I'm going to build these tabernacles. They can, please, just stay here as, as long as possible. I think it, that's a potential thought he had. But the triumphal entry... entry um, 
the warning for Peter was, uh, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So I think the temptation over and over again for us, actually, as well as the apostles, is keep uh, our minds on God's interests, not on man's. Man's interest would be some sort of worldly rule. You know, in defense of the apostles and their, you know, thinking and all, Jesus often talked in metaphors all the time. So mm -hmm. really we're hoping this idea of being crucified was a, just a metaphor. I think it's possible. I, I do know they, they obviously could not get their heads around it. They just couldn't until the Holy Spirit finally came. And we're running out of time, but I'm going to skip a bunch here. I'm going to read some verses that confirm that Peter actually did get it, ultimately. Um, but, but, so to summarize, I, I think basically the main purpose of the transfiguration was for the apostles to see it and to have that gel in their minds so they could recall it. Um, it is a counterbalanced to their inability to understand the concept of the suffering Messiah. Um, this is probably what John was referring to in the first chapter of John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's possible John was thinking of this transfiguration when he wrote that. Hebrews 1. It says, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Another allusion, I think, to this radiant glory of Jesus on the mount. What was that, verse? that was Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, okay, so after Jesus raises from the dead at Pentecost, things change. Acts chapter 2, 36, well, you can read 22 through 24 basically, which summarize it, but um, in fact, let me go there. Acts chapter 2 is such a wonderful uh, section of scripture. I think Acts chapter 2 through Acts 6, I mean, if you start reading chapter 2, I just can't stop reading it. it just, it's so awesome to read those chapters. But uh, men of Israel, listen to these words. This is Peter. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So from here on out, they, Peter's preaching is always, he died and he rose again. He, he died and he rose again. Paul even says it. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, the Gentiles' foolishness. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. 
but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He's the stone which was rejected by you, which became the chief cornerstone. Acts chapter 5, after they're put in prison, it says, uh, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you would put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So there, a lot of verses which uh, show us how Peter finally did understand exactly what was to transpire. And then the final verse I want to read for us is, you know, when Peter wrote his second Peter toward the end of his life, he recalled this actual, this um, transfiguration. It's in second Peter chapter one, verse 13. It says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So he's now saying, I know I'm going to die the way the Lord said I'm going to die. So he knows he's going to be a martyr for the Lord. He knows he can lay aside his earthly dwelling. So think of that for us too. Jesus was on the mountain transfigured. He's God speaking. So there's a heavenly place for us, right? Jesus has it prepared. And I know Peter must have been thinking of that toward the end of his life. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. So he's saying, I know you remember everything I told you, just like what I saw. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So he's quoting what he heard at this transfiguration. He heard the majestic glory say that. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So fitting end to this uh, scene, Peter's life, at the end of it, he recalls the transfiguration and just tells us what a wonderful fact it was to see Jesus' glory on earth. So we're to remember it also, right? Any questions or thoughts? I think, the, I think it's, it's a, the position of this in Mark's story is important. It comes on the heels of where they might feel a little bit discouraged. He lifts them up to see the transfiguration just before the finishing portion of the book, which shows, you know, leads to the cross. Why did they only kill three of them in the transfiguration? Well, they're as an inner circle, and I think it's another, well, yes, I think it's, to um, 
authenticate them as the leaders of that group. That's what I think. Because from here on out, and actually the chapter before, you do start to see Peter for the first time in Mark's gospel starting to rise to the fore. He says, you're the Christ. And he says, let's make a temple. You know, he, so he is the leader. And I think those three were the leaders. So to authenticate them, I think, is the main reason. It's interesting that the only gospel writer who was also a witness there doesn't include this. Yeah. Account. He makes reference to it completely. Yes. So in other words, I, I, I guess it would be that because of the other gospels, this was so well known yeah. that he didn't have to put it in his. Yeah. And when he made reference to it, people knew what he was talking about. Yeah, I have two thoughts on that. Yeah, one, John wrote last, and he seemed to make it a point to not include a lot of the other material that was in the gospel. So he must have known that. And two, John's gospel really is about Jesus as God, the exalted God. So it's almost like, I'm not saying it would be redundant, but the whole gospel is filled with that sort of imagery. So maybe that's another reason he didn't feel a need to include it, right? It also puts me in mind of in Revelation when there's no night because Jesus is the light. Right. Yeah. Yeah, light is a really great, powerful image for Jesus. Yeah. Any other thoughts? So this is like his second baptism because John was there to prepare the way and then when he got baptized it was like passing on the baton identifying him with John mm-hmm. and here he is again he gets the same words repeated by God the only original son he gets the conversion mm-hmm. first by water now it's by the cloud baptized into the cloud like that's the mm-hmm. when it talks about Moses in First Corinthians like baptized into the cloud so here he is identified with the two other guys, which all the miracles of the Old Testament center around Elijah and Moses, so it's like mm-hmm. here's them passing the baton on the eve of his death. And yeah. So it's like so identif- passing the baton in that way. I think so. I think it was all accurate imagery to portray this passing of the baton on to the Lord Jesus ultimately, right? We didn't have time to get in, you know, the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, and Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5, which talk about Elijah and um, the one coming before. So you have the imagery of basically Elijah. John is like in the power of Elijah, right? Elijah was rejected. John is rejected, ultimately. And then Jesus will be rejected, ultimately, as well. So there's that baton passing, too, for the disciples to see. Any other thoughts? Well, not only that illustration of him throwing all the water, but it made me wonder about maybe meditating more now. Not that I want to represent that in any kind of way. But um, that to be to view people kind of like, look, this this is what it really is. You know, like because you know, there's you know, so like Elijah, you know, they set the temple mm-hmm. and they exercise that Elijah thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like tell them, you know, tell them that. Exactly. I think that, that is the main point. They, they were revered. They were known to represent God. And they're dealing with God. And see, Jesus with them should have validated his divinity. Yeah. Anything else? 
All right. Thanks for coming. Meet some of the new folks, and we'll see you guys next week.